0: This is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast.
1: I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist.
0: And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist.
1: This is a podcast where we centre and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between,
0: we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently.
1: Welcome to today's episode. We are going to be talking about executive functioning, the myth and the mystery surrounding it for both ADHDers and autistic people.
0: So executive functioning is a term that uh, people may or may not have heard. Essentially, it's our brain's admin team. That's how I like to think of it. Um, it's basically the functions in our brain that help us do things like um, organize information in mind, uh, prioritize tasks, filter distraction, uh, self-regulate, break down tasks into subcomponents, um, all of those things that are really about Management of information, how we organize information, how we hold information in our mind, um, and how we act on information. So for me, the analogy of an admin team really gels because I always think, you know, in a busy office or organization, an admin team is really the difference between everything running smoothly and things being chaotic and disorganized. Um, you know, you could have amazing staff who are really fantastic at what they do, um, but if there's lots of information sources to process and organize and, and deal with at the one time, you really need a separate admin team, and that's their whole entire job, you know, working with that. So the reason that we want to talk about executive functioning is because for individuals who are autistic and ADHD is. The executive functioning team is often under-resourced in the brain compared to a neurotypical person. So I always use the analogy of the brain being like a business with different departments and we've got our little admin team. Um, And in a neurotypical brain, the admin team is the part of the brain that receives a big chunk of funding. So the admin team for neurotypicals tends to be very well resourced. Comparatively, in individuals who are neurodivergent, those resources have gone elsewhere. Right. There's other parts of the brain that have received that funding. And the reason that that makes things tricky or can make things tricky for neurodivergent people is that really the neurotypical world assumes a super well stocked and well resourced admin team is the norm. And so that's the assumption of functioning.
1: Yeah, and I feel like um, when we're children, there is a lot of support and scaffolding for people's executive functioning, whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent. But then as you get older, particularly heading to high school or – What comes after that, work, life, study, the more there are demands on that admin team and there is less help available because of those expectations of, well, you're an adult now, you should just be able to do it. For sure.
0: And I've often heard individuals who are diagnosed with ADHD or autism in adulthood talk about how, well, there really wasn't an issue when I was in high school because mum did everything. Or I had really great teachers who made sure that I knew what I was supposed to be doing, or, you know, any number of external kind of scaffolding and supports were in place. And then once I got to uni or started working, those scaffolding and support disappeared. And then that's when things started to get quite tricky.
1: Yeah, that's interesting um, because I think uh, when your admin team isn't well resourced, it can be harder to juggle those multiple demands across different areas of life. Whereas if you have just one role that you're fulfilling, it's a lot easier because your admin team's dealing with one, I guess, type of information. And when we look at the difference between men and women with executive functioning demands, um, like the sort of typical picture would be, say, if you have a hobby that's on the spectrum, they might go to work and they function really well at work, get everything done. But then as soon as they get home, they kind of collapse and Maybe aren't able to help out with the other demands that you might have, like cooking, cleaning, caring for children. Um, And it's so like that functioning in one area of life, I think, is more well accepted in terms of gender roles um, and expectations, especially with like family and things like that, than it is of women. Women are expected to be multitaskers.
0: Oh my God, absolutely. And this is one of the reasons I think that we see a lot higher proportion of anxiety and depression in neurodivergent women compared to neurodivergent men, because women are expected to juggle all these different roles, be everything to everyone all of the time. And Exactly as you say, Monique, if your executive functioning team, if your admin team is just kind of one girl and she's had a mimosa, um, <laughs> that sort of makes things a bit more difficult to do. But if you're able to just exist in one role, then that's a lot easier. There's less of that friction between how your brain feels happiest and what the expectations are.
1: Yes, and a common pattern that people are starting to see in referrals are women in their 20s, 30s and 40s. 40s in particular where um, previously they might have had work, they might have had a social life, maybe they had a partner, but then suddenly in their 30s or 40s they might have decided to have children and suddenly they're juggling a whole nother load on their executive functioning of keeping track of the whole household, the children, um, trying to work at the same time and that's often where that admin team just quits. And whatever compensatory strategies the person was using at a certain point in their life, there may come a time where those strategies no longer help them compensate for their executive functioning, lack of funding in certain areas. And that's where the person can actually have a burnout or a breakdown and go, I just can't do this anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that analogy of, you know, the the last remaining team member just quits. Um, <laughs> yes. And it's a really visceral explanation of what we often see where someone who was, quote unquote, functioning for a portion of their life um, is then at a point where, no, I actually can't. I physically cannot even put my dishes away. I can't go grocery shopping. I can't do anything or I do one kind of executive function type task and then I'm wiped for the rest of the day. And when we think about that in terms of, you know, a a mass walkout um, of of the admin staff, it makes absolute sense. So, you know, at the end of our episode today, we'll talk a little bit around some strategies um, and how we can manage some of that executive function overload. But before we do, what I'd like to do is just go through some of the key areas of our executive function and some of the things that that area of functioning in our brain is sort of responsible for so one of the main components of our executive functioning team is our working memory and if we stick with that analogy of our executive functioning like our admin team The working memory is like our admin desk or our bench space. So I've touched on what working memory is in the first season of our show, um, but just briefly, it's basically our space in our mind that enables us to take in information, keep that information organized and structured in our mind, and then decide whether that information needs to be held in long-term storage, whether we actually wanna remember that information, or if it's not important and we can just wipe it off our bench and put it in the bin. So being able to make that call between retaining the information or discarding it really comes down to or is impacted quite heavily by how organized that information is in the first place. So a lot of individuals who are autistic or ADHDs have difficulty with that component, you know, with keeping information organized in mind.
1: And just mentioning that, Michelle. I actually had to ask Michelle to remind me what episode we were actually recording today. (laughs) And she answered the executive functioning episode, Monique. And I was like, ah, okay, I completely forgot. So that's a really good example of that, right?
0: You know, you were... Uh, there when we talked about, you know, this <laughs> was always we scheduled this episode recording. It went onto your bench and it didn't quite fall off the bench. It was still there, but it didn't quite make it to your long-term memory storage either. So, once I queued or prompted that information, you were like,
1: oh, there it is. Yes. Yeah. It kind of got put away um, and, yeah, kind of put in the bin and then I fished it out of the bin. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I would probably more say that it kind of went in a drawer that doesn't get opened Um, and then I was like, Monique, look in the drawer (laughs) and you open the drawer. Um, So that was a really good example of, you know, a working memory issue or a difficulty with working memory. Um, Issues with working memory can also look like, you know, when you're given a set of instructions, only completing, you know, one element of the instruction and not all of them. It can look like losing your train of thought conversation. It can look like um, forgetting dates that people have told you. Working memory is essential for things like keeping track of conversation. The pervasiveness of working memory in a lot of aspects of our functioning means that oftentimes what's really a working memory issue is mistaken for something else. So when I was doing a placement, when I was doing my master's, part of that placement was working with older individuals. So doing things like diagnosing dementia, memory issues, things like that. And so often you would get people come in who would say, oh my God, my memory is terrible. And actually when you discuss with that person, the specifics of what's going on, it wasn't actually a memory issue. It was what we would call an error of capture which basically means you weren't paying attention in the first place when you did the thing. So it's not that that information um, wasn't accurately transcribed into your memory centre or retained by your memory centre. It was it never made it to the bench in the first place or it was on the bench and you just flicked it into the bin, (laughs) which is not memory per se. So similarly, this idea of object permanence or lack of object permanence being a trait of ADHD has been sort of popularized recently, particularly on TikTok. And I completely understand, you know, wanting to have language that feels like it describes the experience that you're having um, and gives meaning or understanding to why you might be experiencing this thing. But actually, object permanence is not quite what's going on in that situation. Object permanence is something that we know develops in humans by at least nine months uh, of age, but there's also been studies that have shown earlier in infancy, you know, even younger than six months, babies can show object permanence. So object permanence is really an understanding that things exist when you are not directly in their presence or, you know, if this water bottle exists right now when I'm in the room, when I leave the room and I come back and it's still there, that means that it existed while I was not in the room right importantly object permanence does not mean that you're actively thinking about the thing between the time points it doesn't mean that that's in your mind and you're considering it between the time points it means that you have an understanding that it exists right so if you didn't have object permanence what would happen there is you would see the water bottle leave the room genuinely believe that the water bottle had disappeared from this realm of existence and then come back and be genuinely surprised, not, oh, forgot that the water bottle was there, but, oh, my God, the water bottle's back from the other plane, (laughs) 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 which, you know, I don't think is going on in the majority of cases where people say they have issues with object permanence. What it sounds like is really happening is, again, a working memory issue. So, you know, the fact that the water bottle is on the desk, the physical desk, um, enters our mental bench space, right? My water bottle is on the desk in the room. I leave the room because I might have a disorganized working memory space. That information gets, you know, put into a drawer or it's under another piece of information. It's not readily accessible to me. I'm not actively thinking about it. And then I'm outside of the room and I think, where's that water bottle? It's not that I've forgotten that water, the water bottle exists. I just can't locate the piece of information that tells me where it is.
1: Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I guess maybe an example of that would be, say, if you take vitamins Um, If the vitamins are in your kitchen cupboard and you actually can't see them, um, that piece of information of, oh, I need to take my vitamins, because there's no visual cue to remind you of the piece of paper that's piled under many other pieces of paper, Mm -hmm. um, you might forget to take your vitamins that morning. Whereas, for example, I have to have all the vitamins out on the bench, um, which makes the bench look messy and cluttered. But it's that visual cue as I walk past the bench that kind of makes me rifle through all of the Stuff on the desk and go, oh, I've got to take my vitamins. Yeah. And
0: I would say too, that having your vitamins on the actual physical bench, exactly as you say, Monique, as a visual cue, actually means that you don't have to store that information on your mental bench anymore, because you're basically externalizing That information that I need to take a vitamin in the morning, it's no longer something that you have to keep organized on your desk. Mm. I'm guessing at no point did you forget or stop realizing that vitamins exist um, (laughs) in the world. (laughs) Like, you know that they exist. You you realize that they Mm. are there even when you're not thinking about them. But the idea that you need to take a vitamin is not always at the forefront of, Mm. you know, those papers Mm -hmm, on your desk. And if there's not a cue, then it disappears from mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've even had people tell me that if something's really important to them and they know that their bench is really cluttered and they want to externalize that thing so they remember to do it, they've even kind of put whatever it was uh, at the place where they get out of bed in the morning. So, they literally step on it and go, oh, I've stepped on this thing. Oh, yeah, that's the cue to kind of go, oh, yeah, I've got to do this thing or whatever.
0: And that idea of externalizing information is super, super important for individuals with working memory issues. And as you mentioned, there's so many different ways that that can be done. I find that working memory issues tend to impact ADHDers the most. Um, individuals who are autistic can also have working memory issues, but we see a particular flavor or we tend to see a particular flavor of working memory issues in ADHDs. So I find that difficulties with working memory can go one of two ways. The first is our predominantly inattentive type ADHD is, who tend to have a more kind of dreamy river way of thinking Um, and they're sort of meandering around on this river there's lots of little offshoots lots of little you know I don't know any other river language but (laughs) lots of little you know places that their thoughts can drift off to and when we think about working memory in this context they've often got you know the whole messy bench thing going on um, and it's not really organized but it's sort of you know I'm adding this on top and now I'm adding that oops that bit's fallen off the bench and I didn't commit that to memory Um, So it's sort of a more kind of dreamy state. And then we've got our combined type ADHDers or our ADHDers who tend to operate at a bit of a higher arousal state and their working memory bench, the sheer volume of information from external inputs and internal input just means that. Even if they've got the best of intentions, there's no way they can keep that desk organized.
1: Yeah. As you were talking about the dreamy river, I was like, "Mm, my river's kind of more like a Rapids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, having all of these thoughts kind of
0: zipping off in different directions, it means that even if you've got an adequate sized bench, you know, for your developmental stage, there's not enough bench space to keep all of that information on. So individuals who have more of a, as you put it, many rapids rather than a dreamy river, um, often they find that they just actually forget things. And I use that word, you know, not in its kind of accurate clinical sense, but things fall off the bench and they don't actually have a chance to commit them to memory or, you know, take them down that memory path because they're just toppling over. And so that externalization of information is really, really important for several reasons. Firstly, and this is both for our dreamy rivers and our rapids. Um, firstly, because as we chatted about, it gives that cue. Having that visual cue helps the brain orientate to that certain piece of information. So, oh, I need to take my vitamin, right? Mm. It also means that less information needs to be stored on the bench. And even neurotypical people benefit from this, right? You essentially can't really function in the adult world without having external means of storing information or keeping information. So having a cue means I no longer have to let this thing take up bench space. It's just in my diary or it's pasted on my fridge or, you know, I've got a sticky note somewhere and you don't have to think about it. So for autistic individuals, they obviously can have the same working memory issues as I just described for ADHDers. What I tend to see though, particularly for individuals who are autistic who don't have many ADHD traits, is it's more so that the bench has been set up for a particular task or concept or thing that their mind is working on. And when it's required to take in a new lane of information, well, it's not set up For that lane of information, the difference, I guess, between, say, uh, that phenomenon in an autistic individual versus a neurotypical individual is the sheer amount of details, intricacies, information that that one particular task or concept or way of thinking is taking up on the bench is volumetrically much greater than a neurotypical person. So what I'm essentially saying is, say you've got, you know, a desk space, right? An autistic individual is going to need that entire desk space to think about a particular thing or engage in a particular task. A neurotypical person might only take up, you know, half that desk space or three quarters of that desk space if it's quite an involved task, um, just because they're often not aware of the amount of different sources of information involved in engaging or thinking about that. So for a neurotypical person, when a second task comes along, they've got a little bit of extra space to hold that extra task and it doesn't feel frazzling or discombobulating. Whereas for an autistic individual, there's literally no space left. Mm. And that will mean you'll have to knock off, you know, all these elements that have been um, arranged in mind specifically for that task to make space for the new information or the new task. And, of course, that feels discombobulating and stressful.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I feel for me, and I wonder if um, other autistic people find this, like when it's information related to my special interest or like what I'm really interested in, like I know everything, everything. and if I have like a job or like a lot of my life centered on that, my memory is excellent, especially for details. But when it comes to adding another task or another job onto that and multitasking and toggling between the two, it's like my system gets overloaded and it does become more overwhelming. Mm-hmm. For sure.
0: And the way that you were describing that, you know, your memory for these things is excellent. What that sounds like is... If it's something that you are interested in, you're able to organize that information very thoroughly, um, very systematically in your mind on your bench space. And you're happy for that to take up your entire bench space. And we know that when information's well organized in mind, we're much more likely to retain it because it makes it easier for us to choose between, you know, what information goes in the bin, what information gets stored in our long-term memory centers. So for that type of information, well-organized in mind, it takes up your whole bench, it gets stored appropriately, you know, in your long-term memory space. And it's really interesting to think about how that marries to information that I often get from teachers and parents around um, autistic students, which is, oh, it's so bizarre. They have an amazing memory for some things, but they just really can't retain this particular thing that I want them to learn. And often that has to do with that interest, if it's something that I am going to have to take away space off that mental bench space, which is my kind of conscious thinking space, and make space for this other thing that I really don't care about, that's not interesting to me, then a the frustration and and sort of overload and frazzled feeling of having to reorganize this beautifully organized you know bench space is, is an element in that. And then B, the fact that I'm not interested in that thing means that all that information just gets sort of crammed into one side of the bench. So it's not well organized, it's not well structured, and it's likely just to fall off the bench as, as soon as I'm you know, not being asked about it anymore. Hi, Michelle here. If you're interested in learning more about autism, come along to my next online webinar on Understanding Autism, held on the 24th of February at 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. This 90-minute webinar is aimed at parents of children on the autism spectrum. We cover what is autism, how is the autistic brain different, differences between boys and girls on the spectrum, language, communication, stress, and meltdowns and strategies to support regulation and functioning for children on the autism spectrum. If you would like to sign up or find out more about this or other upcoming webinars, including Neurodivergence and in Learning, Women on the Spectrum, and Understanding ADHD, visit the groups page on the Redland Psychologist website, redlandpsychologistscomau forward slash groups. There'll be a link in the show notes to the episode. So the other major element of our executive functioning is the ability to break down tasks into their subcomponents, um plan out, you know, how each element might impact the next element, what, so what order we should do them in and then actually doing it. So actually kind of working through that systematically. So for ADHDs, often they're able to come up with the idea really well. Um, and they can come up with all these fantastic ideas. They can see creatively what that task might look like. And actually, they generally have a pretty good understanding or awareness of how to sequence and, and put that task together. The issue for ADHD is, is often in actually doing it, initiating the steps that aren't interesting, the things that aren't fun, The things that aren't intrinsically motivating, and this comes back to differences in the way that dopamine is processed in the brain um, for ADHDs versus neurotypicals, and we've talked a little bit about that in our first episode of season one. What is neurodiversity? So we won't kind of go over that again, but suffice to say, ADHDs find it really, really difficult to do things that aren't creative, that aren't interesting, that aren't fun. And that's not laziness. That's a genuine difficulty getting the thing done that's important, but that's not interesting. So with task planning and working through tasks, ADHDers generally can kind of put it on paper, but it's the actioning that they often struggle with.
1: So that could be starting many different projects, but having difficulty following up and finishing them.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, lots of ADHDers that I know always have a hobby, always have a million and one things on the go. But it's really kind of wrapping up the end details of that project that is tricky or can be tricky. So for autistic individuals, often the difficulty with task planning comes from that hyper detail focus and relatively more difficulty kind of zooming out and seeing that big picture. So for a neurotypical person, they might have a task that in their mind has, you know, four elements, right? Um, Four elements is okay. That's very manageable. If there's only four things, you can quite easily see, okay, well, this needs to come before that and that needs to be next and so on and so on. For an autistic individual, that very same task might have 20 elements to it. That's a lot more difficult to organise 20 elements than it is to organise four elements. It's so much easier to get bogged down in the detail of that and get overwhelmed and do a couple of things
1: and then stop. Wow, there are tasks that only have four elements? Like, (laughs) this is news to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's so simple.
0: And look, you know, as, as we've talked about so many times, there's no better or worse with that. Sometimes that uh, tendency to zoom out and only see the forest is a massive detriment, right? It means that neurotypicals miss information. They miss elements of a task. They're doing things just, okay, here's what we've always done and this is how we're doing it and this is, you know, what's important. And that idea of what's the important element of a task, uh, again, is influenced by the social aspect. What do people say is the important element of this task? You know, I'm going to focus on this because this is the thing that my boss or my colleagues... Um, have indicated to me is the most important element of that task, it might not be. Whereas an autistic individual is much more likely to approach a task assumption-free and being less influenced by quote-unquote common knowledge or um, what other people expect of that task or what other people have said is important. That's a massive strength in so many different professions and across so many different tasks. It means that what they produce is likely going to be a lot more thorough. Of course, though, that also comes with its downsides. Sometimes it is faster to do things based on, you know, quote unquote, common knowledge or what's expected. So there's no better or worse. It's just very situation specific. And the issue that can come with seeing all the multiple elements of a task and all the intricacies and details of that is that that's very overwhelming. And mm-hmm. when I think about school-age children, and particularly high school students, um, often autistic high school students find it so difficult for this reason to um, find their map through assignment tasks or study tasks because it just feels like we're being asked to do all of these things. There's so many different components of this.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Michelle, we've talked about in the episode today how do people's brains store the information? How do they sort out the information on the bench space? And then we've talked about how do you start to break down and use that information to plan a task and approach a task? But what about actually doing the thing? So being able to initiate a task and use that information that you've taken in, you've planned with, and actually produce something.
0: For sure. And what we call initiation, so getting started on something, you know, doing the thing, um, is actually quite a complex uh, behaviour because it doesn't just involve our admin team, our, you know, executive functioning. It's also crucially important to consider what our general mental state and mental well-being is at the time. Um, you know, we know that our executive functioning is sort of a, a higher order thinking skill, right? It's it's a human brain thinking skill. So if we're at a point where we're experiencing, um, you know, depression, anxiety, burnout, mental exhaustion, that's one of the first things that's going to go. And that's true for everyone. Right. Because again, you know, we're thinking about our brain and the different departments and the distribution of resources. Um, Having an admin team is a privilege. (laughs) You know, a business that's just getting started, for example, doesn't have the funding to employ admin staff, right? You're just doing it yourself. So when we're experiencing overwhelm or mental health issues, executive function skills just leave the floor.
1: Yeah. I've had actually quite a few people tell me that their executive functioning has. Been worse since the pandemic, whether they've been neurotypical or neurodivergent. And mm. I think just that constant stress is a great example of, um, yeah, the toll that stress can take on your existing executive functioning.
0: Yeah, great point. And it's basically this idea of your brain kind of reorganizing resources to, you know, what's the department that has the most need at that time. So, if you're struggling to get started on tasks, you're struggling to do the thing despite wanting to do it, um, probably the first thing to take a look at is how are you going more generally? you know, are you experiencing depression, anxiety, high stress levels, burnout? And before you think about, okay, well, how can I make myself more efficient at this thing? Or how can I get started on this thing? Probably the first thing to do is think, how can I care for myself? Mm -hmm. How can I actually put myself in a state where I feel like I have capacity to do this thing?
1: Yeah. And sometimes it can be Uh, catch-22 in that you really need to do the self-care and take action to actually take that stress off to improve your executive functioning, but you don't have the executive functioning at that time to actually do extra things like cook a meal for yourself, have a shower, dress up in your favourite outfit, go to the gym and exercise. Like Sometimes those things that take that task initiation and executive functioning are really overwhelming. And so people get stuck in that self care dilemma.
0: Mm, mm, fantastic point. And this brings me to my absolute favorite saying. And anyone who is a client of mine or has ever heard me speak ever has probably heard me say this a million times. But it's that idea of if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. And, you know, those examples that you gave are great examples, Monique, thinking about taking a shower if it's too much to take a shower, can you splash water on your face? Is there something that you can do that is a form of the task that you want to do that's a little less overwhelming? And I guess we're talking specifically here around when you feel that that initiation difficulty is part of a bigger picture of mental distress, burnout, overwhelm. Mm.
1: Yeah, so it could be simply using like uh, wipes, or rather than cooking a whole meal, um, because that takes actually a lot of executive functioning. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. um, So having like easy access foods um, that don't have a lot of steps in preparation. And sometimes it can look at trying to reduce your overall executive functioning demands across the different domains of your life to give your brain a bit of a break and build up some of that capacity again. I've, I feel that addressing burnout is pretty important in terms of where we are right now in the world uh, with the pandemic um, and everything that people are juggling. And I have actually created a burnout resource that is specific to autism, but could also be used with ADHD. And that's actually up on our Neurodivergent Woman Facebook page and Instagram. Um, It's also on my personal website, monicamitchelson.com. And anyone can access that and it outlines some more steps with that self-care and reducing load. Um, So check that out if you'd Mm -hmm. like to.
0: Yeah, such a great point. And I think with working memory staff, a lot of the time we are so quick to berate ourselves for, oh my God, my short-term memory is terrible. Oh, I can't uh, organize this task or I've forgotten this thing or I can't get started on that without seeing that within the broader context of what's going on for us at that moment. And, you know, really, if we're struggling to do something rather than approaching that with blame, anger, self-criticism. It might be an interesting experiment if executive functioning is something that you struggle with to see what it feels like if you instead approach that with gentleness and care. Why am I struggling with this thing? Wow, my brain must really be working so hard to keep it together in other areas. I wonder how I can help my brain feel more comfortable or have more capacity and I think when we change that language you know how we're speaking to ourselves how we're thinking about the issues that we're having and we approach that from a place of gentleness and kindness things actually do get a bit easier so if you feel like everything's generally tracking pretty fine and you don't feel like you're experiencing burnout and you feel like your mental health is in a good place, um, but you're still having a really hard time getting started on things and, and getting tasks going, it's probably more task specific. So more related to what it is that you're actually having to do. So for autistic individuals, a lot of the time the difficulty with initiation is uh, related to what we were talking about earlier around task overwhelm. So rather than having a you know general experience of and burnout, it's kind of this task in particular feels like it's got way too many elements, way too many components to it. I don't actually even know where to get started because there's too many things that I've got to do for this. And so then the easier thing is just to not do the task. What can really help with that is getting someone's assistance to group some of the elements that you've come up with into kind of, you know, different groupings. And then once you've got a smaller list of tasks, then figuring out, okay, now that I've only got, you know, six elements or five elements of this task, I can more clearly see which type of thing needs to be started on or which thing needs to go first Mm -hmm. if it's in a work setting getting a colleague or your boss to give you some guidance around which thing is most important to you what what would you like me to start on and then that can help you kind of get into the momentum of the task because often once we start the task it's easy to keep going it's just that feeling of oh my god there's so many things to do and i'm not sure you know Mm -hmm. which string to pull at first
1: Yeah, definitely borrowing some of other people's executive functioning is a really good strategy and, you know, no one has perfect Mm. executive functioning across all the areas and this is where we can help each other out um, and help compensate for different strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. The other thing that can
0: make it difficult for us to get started on tasks and this is true for both ADHDers and autistic people, although slightly different flavour across the two, is just lack of intrinsic motivation to do the thing, lack of interest in doing the thing. I find that this often happens for autistic individuals when the task is not something that's coming from you. It's either something that someone else has told you to do, a parent, a teacher, a boss, you know, society at large, this is something that you need to do. And because it's not coming from you, if you don't actually have interest in that thing or or feel that it's important, you might have the feeling that, Yes, logically, I understand where this request is coming from or why I, you know, need to do this thing, but it just really feels boring and I don't want to do it. And there's other things that are drawing my focus, and my attention so much more strongly than this task. And so it actually takes a huge effort of will to not do the thing that's drawing my attention and to do the thing that I, you know, need or am being asked to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What I generally recommend for this side of things with people is to think about uh, what you are interested in and actually think about delegating the things that can potentially be delegated to somebody else who is interested in those things or can provide you some scaffolding for those things so that you can focus on the things that do interest you um, or involve some element of what you are actually interested in into the boring thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, a lot of places where people find executive functioning is difficult with task initiation could be cleaning unless you actually really enjoy cleaning. So, like, I absolutely hate vacuuming. If it was up to me, I would never vacuum a day in my life. It takes so much effort to vacuum the house and I hate it. Um, No one else in the house likes vacuuming either.
0: Yeah, I wonder (laughs) why.
1: And so we've delegated vacuuming to a robot vacuum cleaner. And again, not everyone has um, like the privilege to be able to buy gadgets or hire people or delegate stuff to people. But where you can and with what's realistic to you, um, it can actually really improve your quality of life and take some of that burden off your executive functioning and the guilt Mm. from not initiating tasks. So we really love that robot. About vacuum cleaner.
0: Oh, so hard. Agree with that. And the way that I like to phrase that is this idea that everyone is entitled to a drop the ball task. And that might be in your home life, that might be in your work life, you know, depending on your work structure or, or uh, where you work. But it's basically this idea that um, every single person gets to have one to two tasks or jobs that they completely drop the ball on. It doesn't even enter your mental consciousness. That includes not having any mental load associated with the task, no planning of the task, no task execution, nothing. So for example, my drop the ball task is gardening. I don't like gardening. I never think about the garden. It doesn't matter to me what the garden's doing. I don't let it enter my mental space. And, you know, you might have household members or workmates where, you know, like you were saying, Monique, with the vacuuming, um, nobody really wants to do it. But I guess it comes down to, okay, what can we agree? Is this a task where we will share the load for this task that makes it slightly easier or is this a task where someone's happy to just completely take over the task uh, and that means for me it's a drop the ball task and then you obviously share between the you know household members or staff members which tasks is you know which persons drop the ball but like you were saying Monique I think it really frees up both our mental space for some of those tasks but actually also our emotional space for it and takes away that morality associated with Doing everything. And I think for women in particular, when it comes to household tasks or even work tasks to a degree, we really have this notion that we have to be able to do everything very well. And if we drop the ball, then that says something about our value as a human being, as a woman in society.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, well, you know, I'm working, I'm doing this and that. But I can't vacuum. And it, it's really learning, learning about yourself. What task is worth the drain on your executive functioning and what task is not worth that drain and that struggle on your executive functioning and learning how to communicate that.
0: ADHDers can also have difficulty initiating or getting started on tasks because of, you know, motivation issue, but the flavor tends to be a little bit different. For ADHDers, it often is a dopamine issue. Dopamine is our reward neurochemical, and it gets produced when we get something we want or we're doing something that we want. It sort of drives us towards action. For a neurotypical person, our dopamine gets produced just in anticipation of a future reward, so thinking about something you know, positive or exciting going to happen. Whereas for ADHDers, it really only gets produced when the good thing is happening. Um, So that makes getting started on tasks really difficult, particularly if what you need to be doing is kind of annoying or unpleasant. ADHDers have no difficulty getting started on things that are creative or interesting or engaging in the moment. They have a really hard time doing the boring thing though.
1: Yeah, and so that's when – If you're an ADHDer and you're by yourself and you're really going, I need to do this and then you're just struggling and you're kind of stuck and paralyzed, that's where having somebody else who can kind of jumpstart your initiation and actually sit with you um, or do the task with you to get you started can be helpful because again, once you get started, it's easier to keep going. It takes more energy to get started in a task. And this concept is known as body doubling. And it's where you are leaning on the executive functioning of somebody else who can more easily start that task to help you get started. So it can be as simple as you going to, you know, your partner or colleague, oh, you know, like I really want to do this. Um, Will you do it with me? Or will you just sit there and you can be scrolling on your phone and not really, you know, paying attention, but just the presence of you being there is helping me to start the task.
0: Yeah, and it can even be something like, you know, if it's a home task, all right, I really need to do the vacuuming, for example.
1: (laughs) No, never.
0: (laughs) Um, And so you might get, you know, uh, your child or your partner or or someone in your family to get up and also – do some version of cleaning. And it's interesting, you know, I think a couple of mechanisms um, promote that initiation when we've got someone else there. Part of it is actually just creating an energy within the house or within the office space. One of the really interesting things about the human brain is its propensity to want to get into synchronicity with other brains around us. And synchronicity in this sense essentially just means the electrical signals or impulses and patterns and waves in our brain want to mirror or match that of, you know, another person's brain. So having other people doing the same thing all engaged in the same task, you know, existing, working in the same kind of energy plane really makes it easier for our brains to do that. And the other element of that is something super cool, which is called mirror neurons. So mirror neurons are a particular type of neuron in our brain that basically exactly as the label suggests, want to mirror other people. And they actually create these signals to match and mirror another person's actions. So it's the same thing as, you know, if someone smiles at you, it's really hard not to just smile back. Because your brain says, match them. <laughs> monkey see, monkey do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think it's interesting if you are an ADHD and you actually live alone and you work alone and you have no community. Where are the mirror neurons that are helping you to initiate tasks and prompting you? Mm. Um, whereas you know again, if you're living with other people, if you're working with other people, if you're in a community um, back in the day it could be like a village and everyone's pitching in and doing stuff, it's I feel like it's a lot easier to get started.
0: Yeah, oh 100%. So we hope you've enjoyed our episode today on executive functioning. Obviously, as with any topic that you know we've covered, these are things that we could just talk for hours and hours and hours about. There's so many elements involved in these things. What we'll do is we'll put out a little executive functioning tip sheet on our Patreon. Um, so if you're a Patreon subscriber, you should have access to that within the next few months.
1: Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews and mental health tip sheets.
0: You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental
1: health care information
0: accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast.
1: If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name, The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast, or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.